Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 and continuing to verse 19. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. I was reminded of something just a moment ago as we were working through that beautiful hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. I was reminded of a seminary professor. His name is Andrew Hoffecker. Dr. Hoffecker was very instrumental in my life as I was studying at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, as I was preparing for ministry. I was in a class that he taught on the church and the world, and one of the, the topics of conversation in the course of our study was how does true change in the world take place? And he was entertaining with us as young seminarians what it would take for real change to happen in our society, in our culture at large. And he gave many and varied examples of theories throughout human history of how change takes place, whether it be of a political sort, of a military sort, whether it be of societal educational changes or other forms or sources of which shifts may take place within a community. But he says, above all these things for a Christian... The thing that the believer knows makes the biggest difference in changing the world is prayer. I don't think any of us thought that he would say that. It wasn't on the tip of my tongue as he was describing even what a Christian would see. Well, as a preacher, I thought, well, of course, an amazing sermon is what's going to change the world. And of course, a fresh movement of the Spirit, some revival, and all of those things in varying measures are answers of yes and amen in ways that the Lord uses to really change the world. But one thing's for sure, no fresh movement of God in culture has ever happened apart from the instrumentation of prayer. When God's people humble themselves before the Lord 
and they seek his face and they bring their real souls to meet with the real and living God, God very regularly rewards his people with a powerful movement of his spirit in their midst. Now what's amazing about that when you look at it in church history is that sometimes it's the most ordinary and seemingly insignificant acts that bring about some of those great movements. I think of the prayer revival that happened in New York City in the 1800s where thousands and thousands of businessmen began gathering at the lunch hour simply to pray to the Lord in scores and later hundreds and even thousands came to know the Lord and churches began to be filled with those who knew the Lord afresh either for the first time or renewed, being restored to a love from the Lord and restored to a commitment to his church. It happened when one godly Christian businessman decided with another to begin to pray. It wasn't a great sermon. It wasn't some monumental movement leader. It was a man or two gathering the middle of the week and seeking the throne of grace for the change and the transformation that only the Spirit can give. Now as I think about those prayer revivals that the Lord has given throughout church history, I've, I long to see one and experience one at a, at, a, at a significant measure and level in my own life, whether the Lord will answer that request or not. But I'm going to leave that to His will because He's in charge of those things what he's called me to do, what he's called us to do, is to pray for it, is to seek the very special descending of the dove, the power of the Holy Spirit, to light once again afresh upon the church. And that must happen through the work of prayer. Now, Robert Murray McShane, who maybe some of you have heard his name before. Have you heard of Robert Murray McShane? Famous Scottish Presbyterian uh, minister in the early 1800s, born maybe 1813, 14, 15, died in the 1840s. He actually died at the age of 29. One of the great Scottish Presbyterian ministers of the 1800s died at 29. That's right. Yeah, I've got, you know, five years on him right now. And uh, what he did in those few years is uh, unbelievable, not because of merely his giftings. He was one of the most eloquent and gifted preachers of the time, though he ministered for only eight years as a senior minister in Dundee, Scotland. It wasn't his letters, which he was a prolific writer and actually a great hymn writer and poet, which some of his hymns still sung in the Free Church of Scotland today. It wasn't those giftings that the Lord actually used. It was his devotional life, his life of prayer, that began to really spark revival in and around Dundee. It began to catch a fire in the hearts and the lives of the people of Scotland as he began to pour his life into those in whom he was called to care for, but to do so through intercession. He spent less time talking to people about things and more time praying with people about the things they wanted to talk about. Because he knew that the real power for change and renewal comes not 
through some little sweet turn of phrase, truthful as it might be, but it's in the power of God coming through the Holy Spirit, changing and converting lives on the spot. Robert Murray McShane is known for this quote on prayer. He says, A man is what he is on his knees before the Lord and nothing more. A man is what he is on his knees before the Lord, that and nothing more. What McShane was trying to say is there is a Christian is never more powerful than when he's on his knees before the Lord in prayer. He's, he's nothing more than in that moment when he is in communion with the living God. And he knew, McShane knew, that to study the content of a man's prayers was to really know a man. To really know what concerns the man. To really know what he desires. To know where his affections lie. To know what he's really living for. I wonder if the content of your prayers and my prayers were known what it would say about what really occupies our minds. As I look at my prayers, I'm ashamed to say there are two things that show up very frequently in my prayers. And they start with A's. Help you remember these because I think that they're probably true of a lot of us in this room. Ambitions and anxieties. Ambitions, things that I hope are going to happen Things I, I'd like to see God do, and anxieties, things I'd like Him to, to keep from happening, or difficulties that I'm facing that I'd like Him to fix, change. What's really remarkable is when you begin to study prayer, and particularly biblical prayer, and models of biblical prayer like we have before us in Ephesians chapter 3, with the Apostle Paul, what we learn is that those things are almost entirely absent from the prayers. And that is not to say that we should never bring our ambitions, our hopes, our dreams, our desires to the Lord. He loves to hear those things from you as children. And he loves it when you come to him fretful and frightened and you leave that throne of grace calmed and, and weaned as a child, like the psalmist says. He loves it when we come to him in that. But if that's the only thing that ever prompts your prayers is some difficulty or some desire, it means that your life is primarily about you and your communion with God is primarily driven about what you want or need rather than about what he is and what he wants and what he desires. And that's a problem it means that our communion with God is driven more by our own selfish whims than by His permanent and perfect and good will and desires that He's revealed to us in the Word. What would it be like to begin to enter a school of prayer that doesn't just come from the fact that you have pain somewhere or a desire for something to be a little bit better in this life. 
but you begin to catch a glimpse of what God is up to. And you begin to become so captivated by it that your will begins to marry with His will. And just being with Him and what He desires is to fulfill your greatest desire. We want to pursue that. That's what we want to pursue this year. As we enter into the next four weeks of communion together here at Cornerstone, we want to we want to learn what it means to really seek the Lord on His terms. Seek the Lord with His purposes in view. And in doing, carry those purposes with us. And let the, the knitting together of our relationships as a congregation be bound up in those purposes. And let the trajectory for the way in which we live both individually and corporately be set by the aim of those purposes. That's the next four weeks together. Praying with God in the closet, personal communion with the Lord as we're looking at it today. Praying with God on the go. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Praying to God with and for others. Interceding for others, but also sharing in the heart of prayer together. And then fourthly, praying for the kingdom to come. For thy will be to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we want to submit ourselves to. Lord, we want to know through prayer your purposes in the world. And we want to know your mission. And we want to say yes to it. And we want to pray until we can. Now as we think about it, I think the Apostle Paul gets us started. And I think this prayer is a perfect prayer for the new year. Because I think in this prayer, Paul is so captivated by the designs and the purposes of God that he don't see any of his personal ambitions or anxieties filtering in. What you begin to see is, Lord, I have now caught a glimpse of what it is that you're about, what it is you want for your people, and I just want to pray all of that back to you until it entirely saturates every aspect of my being. And I begin to see it through the power of your spirit, more realized in the life of your people. So very, very briefly, I want to look with you in, in three ways at this prayer. I want you to look at why we pray from this text, how we are to pray from this text, and what we pray from this text. Why we pray, how we pray, and what we pray to begin to orient us towards what praying into the new year, entering the new year on our knees might really look like if we do it on God's terms. Now, the why we pray, and I'm just going to, I'm really going to piggyback on just a few phrases here within this, this, this text. There's no way to fully encompass the riches that are here, and you know I feel great burden to tell you everything that's here in this text. I'm going to restrain myself. I'm going to do as best as I can to highlight these core things. And so I want to just jump right here in verse 14 at this little phrase as this text begins. For this reason. That's what Paul says. That's how he starts. He has just in the previous two and a half chapters, we're right in the middle of chapter 3, been unpacking the glories of the gospel. He's been talking about 
the electing love of God from before the foundation of the world, that he set his heart upon us. He's been talking about the adopting love of God, drawing us into his family when we were orphans, giving us his name and pouring into our account his inheritance. He's been talking about the forgiveness of sins that's come through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he took our place on the cross, paid the full penalty for our sins, and now in exchange has given us the fullness of his righteousness, of which we stand beautiful before Almighty God with a clean slate and a full investment of that righteousness. And then he's just begun in chapter 3, talking about reconciliation, the peace that has been brought into the believer's life through this finished work of Christ and the unity that's now been established between Jew and Gentile, who were two peoples. And we thought, in looking at redemptive history, the twain would never meet. And yet in Christ, he has bridged that gap. Jew and Gentile, now one people in Christ. This glorious reconciliation has taken place. Paul has spent a lot of time unpacking the glorious truth of the gospel. And you know where he's going to go? Well, if you look in your, your Bibles at chapter 4, just briefly, notice this little phrase, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy to the calling to which you've been called. He's about to go into what we call the commandment section of the book of Ephesians. If you've ever studied much in the letters of the Apostle Paul, they're very simple to follow structurally. At the very beginning of his letters, he, he unpacks the glorious doctrinal truths of the gospel. He spends a lot of time setting before us those glories. And then, in the latter half of his letters, he says, so how then should we live? And from the latter half of his letters, he begins to instruct us and command us, and guide us into what a life that lives according to this gospel should look like. Here's what's interesting about Ephesians. It's interesting we see it in a few of his letters. Is between the unpacking of the gospel and the commandment section of obedience, he gives us this most beautiful prayer. It's as if he is saying, these glorious truths of the gospel will never be manifested in your life to the degree that I will call you to in just a few minutes in reading this letter unless the spiritual power of God comes and transforms your life. It will be dead orthodoxy if the Spirit of God doesn't come and quicken you and awaken you to, to splash, as it were, some cold water on the face of faith and wake you up again to what it is that he has done, when you see that and when it begins to capture you and captivate you, then all of a sudden you go, yes, I want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And so right here in between the indicatives of the gospel and the imperatives flowing out of it, he prays for us. He says, for this reason, he has a purpose in it. You know, all prayer needs a purpose. For this reason... All prayer needs a purpose. That's why a lot of times we don't pray. We don't know the reason why, we don't, why, we, why would we pray. What will be the purpose? I'm not hurting. <laughs> if I'm hurting, I have a reason to pray. Get rid of the pain. If I have a hope, I have a reason to pray. I want something done. And if, if we're not hurting, we're not hoping for something, sometimes we dissipate in prayer. But what we see here in this text is that he's so full of the purposes of God in redemption 
that Paul can't help but just usher forth in prayer. And he says, for this reason, for this reason, this is why we pray, for this reason, for what Christ has done. That's why we pray. You see, as we enter into 2016, a lot of times the focus is on what will happen when primarily the focus must start with what has already happened in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I can promise you about 2016. The gospel that has already been finished through Christ who has paid the penalty for your sins, has won the victory over the grave, has ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, who lives right now to make intercession for you, his kingdom will grow in 2016. And he will more and more, through the power of his glorious gospel and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, capture more and more of your heart and life as you pursue him by faith. That's what will happen. And so we know, how do I know that? How do we know that? That's his purposes. It's what he's told us already. And he says, I see this is what God's up to. So this is what I want for you, church at Ephesus. I want you to not worry about whether or not you're training well enough for that half marathon. Or Nate really will lose those five pounds that he gained through eating Christmas cookies. As important and as noble as those goals may be, they're nowhere found in the scriptures. What you find in the scriptures is that he would like us to have fatter and richer souls. And he's less concerned about the slimness of our bodies. He's more focused on the fact that physical exercises have some important, but spiritual, much more so. For it has a lasting impact for both now and eternity. You see, that's where he's focused. And so the purposes of prayer and the way we begin to be prompted for prayer is by saturating in ourselves with the assurances of what's already been done and where it is that we know God by his spirit is going to take us in the year to come. Now here's what really happens. We don't know what that's really going to mean for us. When you begin to pray according to the purposes of God, it does not mean that life will get easier. It often means that, that life will look a little more cruciform. It'll look more cross-like. It'll look a little bit more like Christ. You know, to pray for God's purposes to come into your life is a scary prayer. Because Jesus himself answered the purposes of God for him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And when he did that, he went straight to the cross and he gave up his life for you and me. You see, when the purposes of God begin to capture you, there's no promise of earthly pleasure or ease. But there is of eternal peace and rest. Not just in the future, but in the present. As the kingdom of God begins to break into your heart, you begin to realize, well, maybe it's not the healing from the cancer. Maybe it's the spiritual growth that God intends in the cancer that's his purpose for my life. Maybe it's not the landing of the promotion for the job that I've always wanted. Maybe it's a lower paycheck. 
and I learn to be content in all things. All of a sudden, the things that we begin to aspire to, the ambitions that we've set our hearts and focus on, begin to be reoriented when the purpose of God begin to invade in our lives. And we begin to see that sometimes God's not, it's not above God to take our health or to take our family or to take our money or to take the things that we love in order to get to the things that we really need. The kind of spiritual growth. Just ask Job. He has a story or two about that. You know, it's really frightening when you look at a story like Job, isn't it? Because you get to the end of the book of Job and he's gone through all of these things and he asks God for the reasoning for why all of those things happened to him and God doesn't tell him. God just simply says, this is who I am. And Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have an inkling of an idea of what it is that I'm doing. And Job at the end of the book says, you're right. You're right. And there's a sense of being able to say, Lord, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are, are far exceeding the thoughts that we could ever attain. But here's what God says. I want you to know that in the midst of the mysteries of what might come your way in 2016, all the surprises that right now you don't know are coming around the bend, you and me, that we're going to be shocked by, I can almost promise you, terrific joys, terrible sorrows, they're coming. Both of them, probably side by side. Isn't that how they come? They're coming in 2016, to when they come, God wants you to know when you doubt Him, when you question Him, when you're ready to throw in the towel, remember the redemption. Remember what He's already done. Remember what you know about him. If it looks like he's acting a little squirrely, to put it in a technical term, and you're not really sure about what he's up to, Paul says, revisit Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And remember that he gave his only son for you. He gave the most precious thing imaginable to you in order to save you. It would be wise to trust him with what you don't understand right now. That he has kind intentions, as William Cooper put it, behind the frowning providences. He has an intention that's there. And this begins to drive our purposes for prayer. Lord, we can trust you. I can bring anything to you. I know who you are. I know what it is you're up to. And even when I pray, Lord, give me patience. And he really will answer that. And later you'll regret having prayed it. He'll know that the Spirit of God intercedes with groanings too deep for words for the heart that is within you that aches. Because He loves you. This is how we pray. And this is, this is why we pray. You see, Paul here, for this reason, he says, I bow my knees. He submits himself to the will of his Father. Now, bowing was actually not a common way of praying in the Old Testament, believe it or not. It was, it was rare. It was much more common to stand, uh, much in the same way that when someone walks into a room and we're seated, we often stand and greet them, and we, 
we, we stick out our hand and we address them face to face. When we do that, we're, we're acknowledging them. We're giving them attention. That was the way a lot of the Old Testament prayers happened. It had by standing to attention, by, by greeting the Lord in prayer. But very regularly, we do see kneeling. We see kneeling when Ezra, in, in Ezra chapter 9, is confessing the sins of God's people when he's overwhelmed with the grief of God's people and there's an earnestness and a humility that overtakes Ezra as he seeks to mediate for God's people. There's a, there's a falling down prostrate that happens when, when, when there is, a, when there is a, a, a gut-wrenching confession of repentance that's needed. It's the kind of thing where we see with Christ in that Garden of Gethsemane when he collapses, we're told. When, when, when Paul here says, I bow my knees, he's doing what was customary in the day when you come before a king with a petition. You come to him not as one who swaggers their way into his presence calling the shots. You come as one who knows your place and who comes humbly to the one who is an authority. Paul here says, for this reason I bow my knees. I see the love, I see the power, I see the magnitude of what it is that you've done. So as I pray, I bow before you. I come kneeling in heart, entering on my knees. But what I love about the way that he expresses this is he doesn't say, I bow before the king. He says, I bow before the Father. Now, this seems odd. I mean, how many children do you see bowing before their fathers? Well, if we saw it, we'd say, what kind of power trip is that father on? You know, that's a problem. There's something wrong here. But of course, this is not an ordinary father that's being spoken of here. Paul is, is very aware that this king and God is simultaneously his father. He is king and daddy. He is king and Abba, simultaneously. He's one who deserves the honor of a king, but one who we experience the intimacy of a father. As quickly as Paul can bow his knees to the king of kings and the lord of lords, he can also approach God bouncing on his knee as a son and a daughter whom he knows is loved. I bow before the father. This is how we come to the Lord in prayer, we come with a sense of holy reverence. We bow our knees, but we come to him as a father, not as a fearful servant. We come as one who's a son that's accepted and loved. A daughter who the father delights to see run into his presence. But it's not casual, cavalier. It's not formal and, and, and stiff and rigid. It's relational. It's honorable. It's personal. It respects who he is and simultaneously welcomes and rushes into his presence with a smile of glee. As, as Paul comes and intercedes for the church at Ephesus, he goes, you know the purposes of this God. You know that he loves you. You know his, his redemption is already finished in Christ. So come with him with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace. And as you do so, do so with a sense of reverence and a sense of intimacy. Knowing that both of those things are to be held in as close to proximity to one another as possible. And you know, this is where sweet relationship really begins to happen. When we honor those two things. Even in relationship with one another, we know it. 
someone gets a little too cavalier in relationship with us, that relationship winds up getting weird, sticky. But when we honor each other, when we respect each other, and yet simultaneously are personal, intimate, and open with each other, there's something very rich that begins to be fostered in that communion. Paul here is giving us an example of why it is we pray, but also how we pray. And it's the reason we can come with such confidence. Do you realize there are passages of Scripture that give you outlandish promises when it comes to prayer? I'm astonished at them. I mean, I mean, I must admit, I have a hard time believing them. I mean, listen to what it is that Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Amazing statement. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, of course, context, Matthew 11 is pretty important. He's not saying here, ask for a new BMW. And if you believe that you will receive it, it will be yours. Now, you can find those preachers out there. They're usually on television. There are those who believe that you can ask the Lord for anything in terms of your own wealth and pleasure. And it is God, in a sense, who's bound himself to give it. And if you don't have enough faith, then if you've not gotten it, but they forget James 4. Remember what James 4 has? When you ask and do not receive, it's because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We've got to remember James 4 when we're reading Matthew 11. This asking whatever you wish is asking when your heart's in the place of alignment with the will of God. You see, that's our prayer in praying. Not that we would get what we want, but that our wills would be so conditioned and aligned to the will of God that when we pray, we pray what He wants. We pray. This is, you know, pray to the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. Ask of the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart, which mean, of course, that he will give to you the desires that you should have in your heart, and then you will pray them. He, he, will, he will give shape to you. This is, this is what begins to happen in prayer, and this is why prayer is humbling. This is why in the very process of praying, we are resigning ourselves to the will of God. That's why the chief end of prayer is as P.T. Forsyth put it in his wonderful book, Soul of Prayer. He says, true prayer is the turning over of our will to God, yielding entirely to Him. For every act of true prayer ends in this, thy will be done. And not thy will be done in a kind of, thy will be done. But in a, I know your will is good. I know your will is kind. I know your every intention is for my good and for your glory. How could I not simply lay my will on the sacrifice that is Christ and say, come and do what you wish, O God, for what you wish will be the best of all. That's what it is. Do you love the surrender of that prayer? You want to live in the surrender and resignation of that prayer? That's what we're pursuing in 2016. That's what we're pursuing. 
We're saying, Lord, no longer are we holding life and our desires with a clenched fist. Everything is open-handed. Everything is open-handed. It's all yours. We want you to do whatever it is you want to do in our lives, in our church, in our community, in the world until your kingdom comes and your glory covers the world as the waters cover the sea. You know how, I love that phrase, do you? The waters cover the sea. Do you know how many waters cover the sea? Well, the sea and water are the same thing. They all cover each other. Everywhere, in other words. Until as far as the east is from the west and the north and the south, where everywhere Christ is named, where every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Lord, that's what we want. And we're asking you boldly in this way to stop at nothing short until that happens. Can you pray that prayer? I hope you can. I hope you will be able to pray that prayer. I'm learning myself afresh over the last several weeks, just submitting myself more deeply to prayer, saying, Lord, forgive me for the ways in which I rely upon myself to accomplish your kingdom and your will. Forgive me for being so full of my will rather than being resigned to your will. It's going to require, as C.S. Lewis put it, us going into the closet, closing the door, and probably locking it behind us. We're going to have to, in a sense, do real business with the Lord in prayer. Because some of our hearts right now are very far from that, aren't they? I wrote in the pastoral notes... Either this week or last week, they're all running together. About my own sin tendency to get so excited in those last, last week of December to look over the year and what I accomplished and what I didn't and why I didn't and all of those sort of things and then make plans for the new year. And looking back over my goals for the last several years, it's just so full of good stuff but snade stuff. And realizing that it was my tendency to plan and then later to pray about it. And the Lord began in this December, early this December, through a very surprising um, pause in my schedule, which seems to never happen. Where I was able to submit myself to Him for hours on end, and the Lord brought this very clear to my mind. He says, you have not been... It is, I have not called you to plan and then to pray. I've called you to pray and then watch my plan. Watch for my plan. Watch for it to unfold. Be careful about saying you're going to go to this town and that town and do this and do that tomorrow. Only if the Lord wills, James tells us. And so as we enter into 2016, we want to be able to pray, Lord, for this reason I bow my knees before you. I've seen what it is that you've done. And I know that I can trust you. We want to enter this year on our knees and we want to say, Lord, more of what your purposes are for our life come and be realized in our midst. And whatever that means in terms of collateral, if that means you have to bring some tragedy into my life, then Lord, I want what you want. If that means 
I have to have multiple Gethsemane moments where I'm pleading with you, take this cup from me. And, and you say, listen, I'm going to leave the cup with you, but I'm going to give you the grace to bear it. And that's what happened for the Apostle Paul. That old thorn in the flesh that he had. Bled with the Lord to take it away. And the Lord said, no, you need it, Paul. That thorn in the flesh is the best thing I'm doing for you. It keeps you dependent and relying upon me. You see, it's on the back side of our sufferings where we actually see the light of his glorious love. That all along he'd been weaving a glorious tale of grace. Even when we didn't have the wisdom to spot it. And that's why in these petitions, they're just so full. We won't get to look at them all. But just, just let this wash over you. He says, I pray that you would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. He doesn't say that I pray that you'll receive the Holy Spirit. They've gained that at conversion. They gained that the moment that they were born again, Romans chapter 8. He says, I pray that you would be strengthened with the power of the Spirit that's already there. That He would be stirred up within you. You know that feeling, right? Spirit's always with you. But is He more or less intense? Yes, and active. Charles Hodge says that Christ dwelling in our hearts is always, but our experience of it is in degrees. It's true. You don't always feel the same intensity of the Spirit's work. And that's why the Apostle Paul is saying, grant to them greater intensity, greater strengthening with power in the Spirit. And what is the strengthening of power? He says it this way, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What would that look like? Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. What well, means like I've been doing through the course of this sermon, which is I hope happening in your heart as it's happening in mine. Worship. That you're beholding Christ through faith. Even right now in your mind and in your heart, you're seeing what he's done. You're seeing how glorious and how good he is. And you're submitting yourself to that glory and that goodness. And you're saying, Lord, do more of this. Do more of this. Lord, accomplish this. Yes, I'm even willing to go through the worst possible thing if it would mean that what I know about your kind intentions for me would come about and your kind intentions for your people would be realized. Bring it, Lord. You see what that's happening? Strengthening of the Spirit. It's stirring up of the Spirit. That's Christ dwelling in your heart through faith. Because he says, look, you are rooted and grounded in this love. You're rooted and grounded in this love. I love this. You know, sometimes we feel like life is pretty shaky. Right? You ever feel like the wheels are coming off? You know, we use that phrase. I use that phrase, guilty as charged. Oh, man, the wheels are coming off. The wheels are never coming off, spiritually speaking. The wheels have never, ever come off. They're never, ever going to come off. You're gonna, it's going to feel like they're coming off. But it's going to feel like they're coming off because the things that you've trusted in will get unstable. But who said you should be trusting in those things? I mean... The two metaphors he uses here is of roots and of buildings. You're rooted and grounded. Firm foundations and deep roots. 
If, you're, if your roots are in the soil of performance, then you're going to feel really shaky, like all of the time. Because you and I are going to mess up a ton. If your roots are in the soil of approval or accolade, then, then you'll be just as strong as your approval rating. And you'll feel just as strong as the people who you really want to approve of you. If you're building your foundation on being a good Christian, then you will only feel as strong as your goodness in terms of your Christianity is being expressed. Which is going to waffle. But if you're rooted and grounded in a permanent, everlasting, never wavering love of God in Christ for you, it's really firm. Because it's just as Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8, he says, he says, listen, whether it's life or death, whether it's height or death, whether it's powers or principalities, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. It's incredibly firming your rooted and grounded love. He says, I want you to know that in increasing measure. Listen to how he prays. That you being rooted and rounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that, notice, surpasses knowledge. Don't you feel that? As soon as I begin, even with my own words, straining towards it, I just always feel like it comes up short. Because it does. This is why throughout the course of your life, as the Lord gives you little awakenings and you're stirred up in the Spirit, it's like He surprises you, doesn't it? It's like, ooh, look at what He's doing now. Wow, I'd forgotten that. And you go a little bit deeper. And every door that you open in the mansion of God's love leads to four or five or six other doors that you've never seen before that you'll have the joy of walking through over the course of your life or into eternity. It's a love that you never reach the end of. And really, there's something exciting about that. There's something even adventurous about that. That you're only going to go deeper and deeper into the security and the grace and the power and the beauty of this love. And the work of the Christian is to submit themselves in prayer for that pursuit. This is why he says at the very end that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amazing statement. What even what does that mean? Well, I can tell you this. It doesn't mean that you will be God. He's going to give you divinity. It doesn't mean that. What it, what it seems to indicate by the grammar is that Paul is saying all the perfections of God, pray for all the perfections of God to be realized in the fullest way possible in your life as one of his creatures. Now, when Paul says that, He's praying for the eternal state. He's praying for the day when you will see Christ as he is, for you will be like him. He says pray for that. Pray for that. Pray for degrees of glory to continue to expand in your heart and life and in the community until the day when you see Christ face to face and you're just like him in terms of of perfections because his righteousness is your righteousness now this is a tall task and it's a good thing that it's not up to us to do 
That's why we pray. Only God can do this. And so don't worry, those of you already behind on your two-year Bible reading plan. Right? Three days in, you're two days behind. It's okay. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Some of you didn't sign up for the two-year Bible reading plan. You know why? Because you didn't think you could do it. And you're probably right. It's why you should build into your resolutions that when you fail, you resolve to get up and try again. And in grace, smile at the love of God who loves you anyway. Now that's the kind of God I want to read about. That's the kind of God I want to know. It was never about you getting it done. It's about what He's done. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to make that truth real to us. Not an imaginary fairy tale, but something that's real. Because it is. Awaken us now, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.